0: What is going on, fellow filmmakers and creatives? Welcome to another episode of the Inner Circle Podcast. But before we kick it off, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Brendan Sweeney, Filmmakers Academy member and host of Finding the Frame. And I just want to talk to you about the annual spring sale that we are currently running over at our platform. Are you ready to elevate your craft to new heights, dive into a community where inspiration meets guidance, where camaraderie fuels creativity? Well, picture this. We have monthly virtual group coaching sessions, network events that spark collaborations, and fresh educational content lighting up your screen monthly. That's what awaits you as an annual all-access member. And guess what? Your journey starts now with an exclusive offer. Snag $150 off your first year when you use promo code ARMCAR150 at checkout. It's our way of saying welcome to the family. So why wait? Join us today and unlock the ultimate resource, hub for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers everywhere. And did I let you know that we just dropped our recent masterclass? Filmotechnic Camera Car Masterclass, where Shane Hurlbut ASC and his camera crew of working professionals go inside the arm car, break down what it's like to be a cinematographer, getting that confidence to be able to utilize this specialty tool to get the shot. We hope to see you in the family. We want to see you on the platform. Let's join the community, arm car 150. Check the show notes for the link and enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Welcome Inner Circle members to the September podcast. I wanted to thank you all for the questions that you've submitted and I want to uh, continue to say keep on sending those questions in. These podcasts are only as good as the questions that I get so I can pass on my experience and wisdom and knowledge and all that kind of good stuff to all of you. Let's get started. We have four lighting questions today, five cinematography questions, and one classified as other. So this baby is going to be like a mixed bag of uh, lighting and cinematography. Here's the first one. Shane, you recently posted an Instagram photo of Miles pushing the flow cart. I'm not sure of the intended purpose of the flow cart, but if there was an intended purpose of the flow cart, could you give us some details? While you were in production on Into the Badlands, you posted another Instagram photo of another fluorescent light called the Luma. Panel, which looks like a very versatile light. Could you talk about the Luma panel and why it was the light of choice on a soundstage? Thanks, Phil. All right, Phil. Good question. So the flow cart, that was a very funny photograph, but that was basically Miles and I having a fun time at the Guggenheim. That was actually an art installation. So I told Miles to sneak back behind the place that he couldn't really be and act like he was pushing the flow cart. And then I talked about it being my new batten style light, but with flows. So uh, that's all that was. But I do love fluorescence. And getting to the Lumapan, I'll kind of describe what I did on Into the Badlands that really changed the way that I light interiors, specifically interiors that need to look like exteriors. So we had this location, well, a set called Wall Street, and Wall Street was behind the fort walls. Into the Badlands is very much kind of medieval-esque where, you know, you have your barons and they live in the in the castle, let's say, and then you have the peasants and everything that live outside the castle, but very close to the walls, so they feel protected by the baron and his army. Wall Street is that kind of peasant village right outside the walls of the fort, it is a very seedy kind of area. It has a lot of, uh, doll house where it's like the strippers and burlesque and the brothel. There's a tattoo parlor, there's a a dentist, a barber, uh, you know, all the little things that you'd have in a quote-unquote western one-street town, and uh, this is what Wall Street was. It was three stories, and it was about 150 feet long and about 90 feet wide. I wanted to bring in lights that were very low heat because I knew that we were going to be in Louisiana, and we were in this community center that we literally turned into a soundstage. At one end, it was 35 feet on the roof, and at the other end, it was 55 feet. So it was very difficult lighting something like that, because one direction, you had beautiful ceilings, like a soundstage at 55 feet, and you could really put your lights up out of the frame, and finesse it, and flag it, and do all those type of things. But on the other end, at 35 feet, with a three- set, the lights literally sat on the top of the third story. I needed a light that was very compact, very thin, and could put out a ton of output to create day inside. You know, everyone talks about ISOs and you don't need all this light. You just need very minimal amount of light because the sensors are getting so sensitive. Well, that's so wrong. You need a lot of light because daylight comes from everywhere. Daylight comes from the top. It comes from the sides. It comes off the ground. I mean, you think about it. Walk outside and just start to look at where all the light is coming from. Now, you're going to do that inside where you have black walls, and a black ceiling, you have to think about it in a way that always going to mother nature, always going outside and there is your inspiration. Okay, how can I create that kind of quality inside? Back in the day, you know, you created that quality with these big space lights and and I never understood them. I used them because it was really the only thing that was out there. But they were six 1K nooks in a circle that was about three feet wide and it had silk sides and a silk bottom and it hung like four feet down and this that looked like these big China lanterns that were circular and rectangular all at the same time. And you just hang hundreds of them to create day. First thing that comes across my mind is, well, wow, okay you have that. but then where's the sky? Skylight doesn't look like a hundred hot sources in the air. It's one even field. So, what I did is I took the Luma panels, which are like 15 light T8 fixtures that are very, very bright, and you can dim them as well. They duke. change color temperature when you dim them. They get colder and they get more magenta. We would run them full up so they wouldn't get that magenta spike. But I put them in these boxes and the boxes depending on where they would fit in this set were sucked all the way up the ceiling using the thin nature of this Luma panel. Sucked all the way up the ceiling and put in these boxes these truss boxes that were had sides on them and also egg crates in them that that basically diffused the light. So there was a full grid cloth with the luma panel pounding through the full grid that then had a like a 40 degree egg crate on it. I did strips of duvetine inside that, and it was about uh, 10 feet wide by 20 feet long. And we had 12 of these. And they basically would work, if the set was 26 feet wide is the street, I hung two of them side by side. And then for a hundred some odd feet that the whole street was. And then at the T intersections at both ends, I teed 10 by 20s as well. So one went around The corner a little bit and the other one went around the corner. So imagine a very large capital I. That was Wall Street. And it was all these Luma panels with the frame and the full grid. When we brought those things up to full with all 15 bulbs in them, and I think we had five in every one of those 10 by 20 banks, I could shoot at 300 frames per second, no problem. So that's what I was lighting for. We had to be able to light at 2398, a beautiful scene, either it was night or day. So for day, I would just bring those up. Uh, I think I only brought up five bubbles in each. So I call each flow a bubble. So five bubbles on each one of the fixtures in every one of those boxes, and that created the day ambience. And then when we went in for coverage, I would bring in a 12 by or an eight by and pop a HMI into it just to bring up a little light in their eyes. My idea, for Wall Street was, we knew it was three stories, but it it goes on forever, it goes like six stories high, so I created like an alley type of lighting. I don't know if you've ever been in an alley, it is one of the best places to shoot, because the light quality is so beautiful. You have this beautiful diffused sky light coming down into an alley that usually has very dark sides to it, and a dark floor, and it creates just this beautiful light quality on the individual. So that's what I tried to create with this approach and with these Luma panels. They create beautiful ambient day. And the shot that I took on the Instagram was my use of it outside of four or five French doors. And that's where our widow character and our MK and Tilda come through a garden and they look in the window and they see the the widow training with all her swords and everything. So so I had to create this day ambience outside in the garden, but we were on some crappy little stage in New Orleans with 20-foot ceilings, and it was like a, a aluminum steel structure. It had a lot of limitations, just like the community center. So I needed something that was very thin, could get very high. I could then diffuse it with the full grid and then put an egg crate in there so it didn't fly all over the trans light and everything that I had behind there. And the trans is like a photograph. We call them chromatron. It's literally a photograph that was taken of somebody's backyard with a beautiful oak tree and everything in it that fit kind of our backgrounds that were around our location, our establishing shots and everything that we shot on location. I would rear illuminate the chroma trans so it looked like trees and out of focus, hot grass and everything in the background. The luma panels came in with the ambient top source, and then I'd streak a nice hot 18K through the background to kind of Uh, create this late afternoon sun so there is your luma panel question next question next question hey shane thanks for all the amazing content in the inner circle and for forging this awesome community Well, you are very welcome, Jacob. I have a question about exposure. When moving from daylight exterior to an interior, do you try to maintain the same light intensity inside or do you change exposures in the middle of the shot? It may sound nuts, but are there any key situations you would say to attempt an exposure change or just try to maintain the same exposure throughout and blow lights through an interior? I know it's a packed question. Thanks for your time and all your investment in us. Jacob Hamill. All right. Hey, the Hamill brothers are in the house. All right, Jacob. Well, this is a great question because I have to say I do more aperture pulls than I've ever done in my whole history of filmmaking. Uh, Since digital and specifically I started doing them on fathers and daughters on the c500 because the latitude on that camera is only 12 stops So you are constantly dealing with exposures where the camera just cannot handle it So I'm always adjusting exposure. I literally adjust exposures even on the dragon On Badlands, I'm adjusting the exposure every take. If they go into an area that all of a sudden the light's a little hot, you know, we're doing a a television series here, and a lot of times, you know, I'll get in there and I'll finesse the light the best I can, but, you know, we got to go. I'm literally adjusting a lot of times the exposures all on the fly, and I have my Hocus Focus device. It's the best range of any remote follow-focus motor I've ever seen. So that became my iris motor because i'm usually in remote places sometimes with my monitors and i'm through brick walls and all that stuff and the hocus focus really delivered for me i was sitting there and i would do aperture pulls so we'd have two motors on we'd have a motor for our focus and then we'd have another one which was the hocus focus for our aperture and it was the way to do it you want to light enough So it's not so extreme that when you go inside, the windows just become like a nuclear holocaust out there, right? So you have to light a little, but you can ease that lighting on how much you have to blast in there by doing these wonderful aperture pulls. And I have to say there's an art to it and you want to be doing it in a way that feels very organic and uh, the audience, I feel, just goes with it. It's old-style movie making and I think it's an art form and it's something that's absolutely underrated. I do it so much on these last two projects that I've worked on, it's become my go-to. I mean, my guys, they never fly any camera without an iris motor because they know I'm just sitting there adjusting. And it also saves Saves time. Think about all the dialogue you have. of, Oh yeah, put that down another half stop. Oh no, make it a third. Oh oh no, close, oh, open it up a little more. All this dialogue you have, especially when you're shooting three, four cameras and if it's all under your control under one little tent, then you are like the Wizard of Oz behind this tent and you're like spinning your knobs and, and creating all your exposure and this is the way that i found to be the fastest and uh, the most accurate. The answer to your question question, is light enough in there so it doesn't look unrealistic when you do open up that the windows still hold? I mean, they can burn, but they want to hold and look real with a little detail out there so it doesn't look like a wasteland. It is very important to do this, and I think with the cameras that we have in our hands now, the Alexa being 14 stops, the Dragon being 14 and half stops, Sony's being in the 13 to 14. Range the Black Magic 13, the, the Canon 12. You can see that even With the extremes that I'm going into, like having somebody in a forest and under that massive foliage, and but I have meadows in the background that are being beaten with sun, it's that balance that you want. They go into an open area where all of a sudden the trees open up. Well, I'm adjusting that exposure. I'm keeping that exposure consistent and uh, balanced the best I can. Next question. Thank you so much for creating this community based on your huge wealth of information. You're very welcome. I've been thinking about the idea for some time, and I'm sure others have been too. The most valuable learning tool for aspiring DPs is probably getting the opportunity to be on set with a seasoned DP. Many of us don't have the opportunity, which is exactly why your inner circle is wonderful and relevant. This comment isn't necessarily targeted you, but to all DPs and the studios that pay them. My proposal for certain films, dedicate somebody on set every day whose job is to diagram every lighting camera setup for each scene and possibly take BTS photos. Make those scene diagrams and brief write-ups of each scene available for a price. The same way that you can buy a published version of a script, Online, I feel like this could be an extremely valuable tool for aspiring cinematographers. There have been so many times where I see a beautifully lit scene and I wish I knew the lighting schematic. Roger Deacon shares knowledge on his forum, but it isn't very specific. Shane, you share very specific information and lighting diagrams, which is fabulous. I'm not saying every movie should have this kind of attention, but for certain films, it would be fantastic. Do you think this kind of request could ever happen? Make it through the studio system, pipeline of legality? Of course, this is based on the assumption that cinematographers and studios would be willing to share their secrets and lighting setups. Just interested in your thoughts. Thanks. That is a very, very good question, and it's why On Set with Shane was created. I knew exactly this, that people want are thirsting for this knowledge to kind of go on set with any director of photography and start to see how he paints and what he uses and the conversations with the director and seeing the location for the first time and how he brings that thing to life. There are not very many people that want to share this. It's something that it is their secret and it is what they have spent their whole career developing and honing, honing their craft and their expertise and their exposures and how they lighten everything. And they are not going to pass this on to you or to anyone. Now, what makes me different and why I would do this now? Well, that's a really great question tied into this question. My parents were incredible educators, and I grew up in a house of educators. And I find that when I am teaching, I am so relevant because I'm using the same tools that you all are using. Now, the skills and stuff that I talk about is going to be good 50 years from now, 100 years from now. The tools will change. But the concept of lighting, of composition, of camera movement, of evoking emotion, of uh, camera motion and lighting emotion, all those things, those are never going to change. The tools will. How you light them will be differently in regards to what light source. But the concept of how you're diffusing it, how you're shaping it and all that stuff, this is knowledge that lasts forever. At the same time, you got to be able to relate and you have to be able to relate to people that are using Blackmagic Ursa or a Blackmagic Cinema Camera or a Canon 5D Mark III or a C100 or a Dragon, Lexa, a Sony. These cameras, there's a shorthand that has to be there, and I think it's very important for me to share this knowledge now while I am very relevant with the information of the tools that I'm using so I can then best educate you on the ideas and the concept and the theory that will not change, but how we're bending that theory, that lighting, that camera, the composition based on the tool itself. You light differently for different sensors. I'm trying to teach you that in this time period. I mean, I think it's a great idea. And Lydia came up with this idea. You should be giving her major kudos for developing this onset with Shane. The fathers and daughters one was our first attempt at this. Fathers and Daughters is still not in the theaters. It's going to come out October internationally and then I think January in the United States. I'm not able to have access to that media to show you examples of all the stuff so I have to take you virtually through the location pictures and, and lighting schematics and everything that I did but when we launch the next onset with chain, which is Into the Badlands they are going to be wrapped with tons of of videos that are showing you the show and the scene, and then you're gonna have the lighting schematic, and you're gonna have the location pictures, and you're gonna have stills from the telecine sessions, and all this stuff is going to be provided for you. So, Onset with Shane is only getting better, and on each film, I will be delivering exactly what you are asking for, but I will be delivering it and not other cinematographers. So, right now, Onset with Shane is where it's at. And I think that the secrets that the studio and them sharing lighting setups and all that stuff is really an interest only to cinematographers to a group of 20 to 40 to 50 students at a time and not the masses next question Shane and Lydia thank you so much for this incredible resource your whole team rocks thank you so much Ryan I have to say everyone has been so positive with the inner circle and and our team and I cannot thank you enough and I will pass this on to all of them this last inner circle content shoot that we had we shot for four days and the team was absolutely incredible and all of the people that flew in from all over America to lend a hand and to learn. I cannot thank you enough. I have a lighting question that I struggled with that drove me absolutely crazy on a recent production. The director wanted complete darkness. This was a horror film with some paranormal activity taking place. So there was no moonlight and for the most part there were no candles. How would you light for complete or nearly complete darkness but still actually be able to see something of an image? Or is this crazy? Crazy thing to try. Thanks, Ryan. No, this is not a crazy thing to try. And my God, I get asked this, asked to do it a ton. People love darkness, it's scary. But at the same time, the minute you light it dark, they'll say, I can't see anything. Right? (laughs) So it's like, okay, you told me you wanted darkness. How I do these type of things is by motivating an ambience in the room. If there is no light sources whatsoever, no candlelight, no moonlight, nothing, then I always try to bring it from the top. We say, where is that light coming from? Who cares? Just as long as you can start to see some depth and dimension in our characters. So on sets, we very rarely have ceilings, right? So we have ceiling pieces that we can jam in there, but the ceiling is completely open. So I would hang, I did it on fathers and daughters where I would hang a 12 by 12 math bounce up above the wall on a slight angle and then I'd fire lecos into it and just give a sliver of light across the whole 12 by 12. So it created that kind of alley lighting feel that I talked about in our first question. And what that does is it keeps the light off the walls and it's, it creates this ambience that some falls on the walls, but it has a hotter source in the middle of the room. And when people move around, it's, it's dark. You want to create that idea that you have to squint to see things. Once you squint, you're like, oh yeah, I can see them. You're in the pocket. And the Licos give you ultimate control to be able to like, you know what, that corner, I want that corner up a little bit. And then you just pan the Lico in and maybe blade it so it hot. High- and I'd hang three or four Licos up there. And I would just beam them into this 12 by 12 to light a 16 by 16 room. So the 12 by 12 was up in the air, angled slightly to wherever the direction my camera was going to be in. If I was looking into the room, then the 12 by 12 would be slightly angled down on the wall that I'm looking at. So it's angled. So the Lecos would fire above camera on the set walls, above into the Leco, and then that would create kind of a back toppy kind of feel. And then if you spun around to the other side, then I'd flop the thing the other direction. Now, if you're going Cinema 360, then you want to look at creating some 12 by 12 overhead, like a full grid cloth, and then maybe putting some Kino flows, four bank Kino flows above it with some kind of egg crate so it doesn't just blast all over the walls. Or you can use the Kino flows and just put a duveteen cider all around it so the raw light doesn't fly off and it just goes through the full grid. And then by doing that, you create this very soft ambient light that the camera can literally spin 360 degrees around. The style of light is how I've done a lot of that. Hardly any light in a room. Darkness is what the directors will all say. You know, I want complete and utter darkness. This is my approach to it. I did it in Act of Valor. Drumline, I did a nice dawn sequence where we dollied from one room to the next as the guys come in with their bass drum and they wake all the new recruits up and they're just pounding the bass drum down the hall and we're kind of sliding down the hallway as you see all of them wake up. I also did it in Crazy Beautiful. And that was the exact Lico approach. So if you want to take a look at that movie, Crazy Beautiful, where Carlos's mom wakes him up to go to school at like 5 a.m. in the morning. And it is dark in that room. All the curtains are drawn, and the only light that comes into the room is the light that she opens, and it casts onto the back wall. At first, it's very dark in there. So this is how I would go about uh, creating darkness, but still being able to see them without pretty much any motivation, whether it be moonlight, candlelight, window light, whatever. Next question. Dear Mr. Shane, first of all, I want to thank you for sharing knowledge with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for supporting and being an amazing Inner Circle member and helping with this community. I have a question for you. How do you shoot some movies with different cameras, varying in their quality and the audience doesn't notice that. Regards, Ahmed. Ahmed, how are you doing? Wanted to thank you for all your incredible questions within the Inner Circle comments. You are an amazing Inner Circle member, and I just want to give a, a throw out to everyone about Ahmed. A lot of the Inner Circle content that we're creating for 2016 came off of a lot of Ahmed's suggestions. I mean, obviously, we use everyone's suggestions of what we're going to create, but Ahmed kind Kind of struck a chord with a lot of the ideas that I had in my head and then vindicated the fact that this is the right thing we should be doing. So Ahmed, thank you so much. And here we go. I've always shot with a lot of cameras. Even when I was doing Crazy Beautiful and, and Drumline, I had five or six cameras back when everyone shot with one or two cameras. So I always had a, an arsenal of cameras. And that's how I created my speed. Because what I find is is when you are configuring a camera, it is time. And it's time wasted. I'm very fast lighting. And a lot of times, if we want to go from handheld to Steadicam to Movi to on the dolly to a crane, if you have to take that one camera or if you have two cameras and you have to reconfigure them to each one of those scenarios, it takes 20 to 30 minutes. And with the cameras now, with all their little cables and their accessories and the Teradex and the onboard monitors and the this and the that, it takes times to put all those pieces in parts to sync the Pterodact, to do all these different things. So the more you can have a complete system always there built is what it's all about. On Active Valor, I mixed four different camera systems. I basically mixed film, 35 millimeter Kodak film. I mixed Sony F950 for all the helicopter work. I mixed Canon 5D Mark II and the Canon 7D. Those were the four camera systems that I mixed on Act of Valor, and I had never mixed formats like that before, other than shooting Super 8 and Super 16 and then 35 and mixing them all together. I've done that on so many music videos, so understanding the idea of mixing formats in those type of scenarios in the music videos, it was meant to look different. With what I'm doing now, it's meant to look like it's the same emulsion. I Really started to find my stride on Active Valor when I was able to kind of even the playing field, which is take these four different camera platforms that were on Active Valor and use a post process called CineFilm, and you can get the plugin for two hundred bucks on Adobe Premiere. Uh, they don't make it for them Mac, so don't even think about asking them. They've been asked a hundred million times, and they will not do it because it's going to cost too much money. We use this plugin basically to go in and eliminate all of the noise and the pixels and all the imperfections of the Canon 5D, the 7D, and the F950. And then once we eliminated that, we then layered grain on top of that that matched the grain on our day exterior, day interiors, night exterior, night interior that we shot on film. We would match the grain structure to these video digital formats. And that's how I found to be able to you know seamlessly create this by evening the playing field, where you're doing the same process with the film. You're stripping all of that grain off of the film as well as all the digital noise and all the bad kind of quirky qualities of the Canon 5D and 7D. By doing that, you make them more equal to each other, and then they match beautifully. On Need for Speed, we did the same exact thing. We shot Arri Alexa, we shot C500, we shot Canon 1DC, and we shot GoPro Hero 3. We did the same exact thing with that. We took all their compression and all the stuff that happened with all those varying sources, and we eliminated it through this cinefilm process, and then we went back and layered a style and a texture of grain over all of it to match seamlessly. Having the ability to mix these cameras was so important for the story and for the approach that the director wanted. He wanted this to feel real. He didn't want it to be CGI. He wanted cameras mounted on cars in places that you had never seen a camera mounted before. That's going to require different cameras that are not an area Alexa that's 24 pounds and 28 inches long and nine inches wide. That's just not going to happen. By taking these smaller cameras, especially the GoPro, where we could just mount 10 or 12 on a car, light the thing on fire, put it into a ratchet, spin it over a bridge and land on nine other cameras that were down on the rocks below it. This is stuff that uh, makes me excited. This is what I love about creating movies and, and the art form of cinematography. And this approach is, I think, a very unique one and one that I've kind of mastered over the years to be able to, blend this style of all different emulsions and all different qualities to look like one. Next question. Hey, Shane, I was curious if you could speak on your process for evaluating a frame, whether it's a camera test, a lens test, whatever. How do you train yourself to notice subtle nuances in a frame that help when evaluating things like how the frame rolls off in the highlights, evaluating color, contrast, sharpness? I try to do things like that My eye just fails me because more often than not, it feels like I'm searching for some elusive quality that I can't even discern. I want to be able to learn or train myself how to evaluate these subtle details that add up to making a great image. Excellent question. This is so much about experience. It's just getting out there and doing it and doing it and doing it. At 25 years in this profession, I am still honing my skills, evaluating a frame. Let me break it down a little for you. So when I first look at a frame, the first thing I do is I look at the left corner, right corner, left bottom, right bottom. Okay. I look at all the corners of the frame. I'm seeing what is in the background. How does it feel balanced if my actress or actor is slid off to one side or the other or center punched in the middle of the frame? What's going on back there? And how can I bring more depth to that background? Say I'm shooting a person and in the background is a kitchen, and right now the kitchen's not lit. I have a head floating in blackness on all corners. Well, that could be a cool concept of depression or, you know, that he's down and uh, not feeling good or something happened and we want his world to fall off into black. That's a creative approach. But if you want to bring some depth and dimension to the background, then I'm looking at the corners and see what I can light. So say over his left shoulder, I'm able to put a little highlight in the background and and if he's lit with a warm color then maybe I'm doing a white color or maybe a slightly coolish tone back there to be able to bring a little separation to the background these are the type of things that you're looking for color and contrast color contrast is huge especially with these new digital cameras I'm using different color temps all the time I'll do a scene where I'll light it with like gold. Golden light or whatever. And then I'll just start popping lights into the ceiling that are 5500 and uh, create the cyan into the shadows, this kind of a uh, blue green into the blacks. And I love doing that. And it's a very cool look. I, I did it on fathers and daughters and I did it on into the badlands as well. It's just experience. It's just getting in there and just looking at all the corners of the frame, making your first stroke, obviously key lighting your individual, making sure that's all working well. Take a wide shot for example. We have a set. It's got bay windows in the background. It has a bed and little dresser and all that stuff. So your wide shot, what do you want to feel? Is it a frame within a frame? Do you get back so you can look into the doorway and see the door frame as well as the bay windows in the deep back? Okay. What do you want? Does somebody walk in and sit down at the bed? How do you want that mood to feel? Do you want it to be dark and he or she is only lit in the bed area and everything kind of falls off? Or is there blinding light that's coming through those windows that kind of silhouette What's the figure over at the bed. These are all lighting choices as well as composition choices. So much of it is, as I find, instinct and taste, just like you're an artist. It's not necessarily you thinking and reading books and stuff like that of what you're supposed to look for and this is what this guy did and this is what this other person did. It's more like finding your creative soul and what makes you so awesome and creates your artistic vision. As much as I'm here for all of you, I really want for you to take these resources that I'm providing for you and bend it and shape it and make it your own. This is so important. And I do give you a lot of schematics that tell you exactly how to light things, but I'm hoping that through all this, you will make your own creative and artistic choices and find your creative rhythm and your soul and how you want to go about it. Don't worry about your eye failing you. This is all experience and just starting to really look on how you can create layers of light, layers of depth and composition, and then deciding what is the emotion that that character is going through, and then how you can use specific tones of colors or how you can use specific contrast to be able to help and assist in their emotion within that scene. Hi, Shane. I'm a wee Weekend warrior filmmaker, and I have a reasonable grip on the shooting side, but I'm trying to understand the construction of an average hundred minute film. I've dissected a movie, how many scenes, how many shots, etc., but would appreciate your thoughts on this. Is there a loose formula, or you just have a script and you shoot what's required and let that dictate the length of the movie? Thanks. Rod in Australia. All right Rod, is a good question. What we found within the movie business is that every page is one minute. If a script is 120 pages, then that will be a two-hour screenplay. Now, sometimes there's a lot of action that you would make it longer, and I find that when you have action films, they're in the 90 to 105 range. Dramas tend to be 120 to 135. Horror films tend to be in the 90 to 95 range. There's a little bit of adjusting there based on what the genre is of the screenplay. But usually one minute is gauged to one page. Depending on how you break it down and shot wise and all that really will not necessarily increase the length of the movie unless you're doing like a lot of shots that are very long. And, and I have Scotty Wall. Here's a good story. He's constantly giving me a ton of shit for creating all these techno crane shots. And he's like, you create these awesome shots, but I have to cut them out of the movie because they're way too long. And I always say, well, just let the shot happen. Oh, yeah, it's all well and good. That's what you want. But we need pacing on this thing. It is finding a wonderful middle ground to do these style of shots, whether it's crane shots or Birdman shots, where it's all one continuous shot where you're moving with the actor and you're in front of him, you're behind him, you're off to the side, you're feeling immersed with this action. But obviously, you need to keep your show and your story and your film moving. That was the one thing I learned in television. You don't do oners. And that was kind of a bummer to me. But that's what came down from AMC and all the show creators, that oners do not exist. So everything had to be cuts. And, you know, it kind of bummed me out because I love oners. But I do a lot of oners in Fathers and Daughters. So I got my oner creative artistic aspirations last year. So... I didn't have a problem uh, bringing it down into all cuts for television because they have that box, right? They have that 42-minute box, and if there's a oneer that d- does a whole scene, well, they'll have to cut the scene to be able to fit within the 42-minute window. These are all things to think about when you're creating your stories and where they're actually going to end up on. The design of how you're going to shoot them is going to be very important. Hi Shane, thanks for this incredible community and source of information you've created. You are very welcome. As an actor who is also a filmmaker and has a photography business in New York, I think I may approach things a little differently. I want to ask you about your approach when planning your shots. In your last podcast, you mentioned editing in camera with the digital Bolex. Well, it wasn't actually the digital Bolex. It was a film Bolex camera that I did in college, and that was the lesson: was to shoot in order with the Bolex. If you wanted the wide shot first, and then going for close-ups, or for your story you wanted to shoot, start intimately, you had to start with the close-up and then jump back wide, as a young filmmaker, you could really understand the process of being very conservative and responsible and understand how to cut a movie and do it so it's all in camera. So you're taking that 100-foot or 200-foot mag that we had and you created your story based on that. And there was no editing. You just had to show that film with the sound and everything to the class. So that's what that was when you were in school. But when I went to Vincent LaFerre's Directing Motion Tour, he recommended getting all the coverage in a more classic approach, going from a wide to a medium to a medium close-up and a close-up. He warned about the dangers of not covering your ass. I've tried the classic approach in the past and on recent projects, but honestly, it bores me to death. Personally, I love editing in camera. It's thrilling to me, and it saves me a lot of time in the set and editing room. It also makes me really invest in my coverage and my shots, and I love it all coming together in the editing room like I envisioned in on the shoot. Rarely, I miss not having a shot, and for me, the time savings and my energy in the set make this occasionally loss worth it. What is your take on this matter? Do you have a different approach with personal projects versus professional projects? Any thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you again soon, Ricardo. All right, Ricardo. Well, I think it's a mixed bag. You work with different styles of directors. I worked with Gabriel Muccino on Fathers and Daughters, and the script was the Bible. And the script, not only did it have the words on the page, it also had my look, which I describe each scene and the lighting within it, as well as having a complete and accurate shot list of what Gabrielle was going to do on that scene. What this does is it really shows you immediately the pacing of the film. And when you start to see it overall on the pages in the script, and he puts the different shots even within the words and in the page and everything, when you do this, it is very helpful and it educates you exactly what coverage you need and you don't really overcover i felt we did not overcover it all on that film. I thought it was the most proficient and the most organized and the most responsible in what we were getting that I had ever seen on any movie that I'd worked with. He didn't need close-ups sometimes. He'd let it all play in a two-shot. He didn't need to go in for the super close-up. He would be happy with a medium shot. It was really a wonderful learning experience for me because I had come up the ladder with a lot of directors that did the wide the medium, the medium close-up, and the extreme close-up, and that was what I had learned. And working with Gabrielli, who is much more European, you don't need all that coverage, is what he felt. I quickly adjusted my thought process and how I shot because I'm there for him to bring this vision to life and to assist him or assist her. It was very important for me to immediately get into his style and understand his approach for everything that he was doing so I could really create the best suggestions and light the scenes so he could get that immersive camera that he was so longing to deliver in Fathers and Daughters. Covering Your Ass is very good on television because you never know when you're going to have to go to the insert because they're adding different lines, the story's not working the way they thought it was, and they're going to need to put in a line so they need to cut to a close-up of something to have the ADR of the voice come out of the character to say, hey, uh, this, and then that educates the audience in something that the audience didn't understand. These are things that, yes, I think Vincent is absolutely correct in regards to covering your ass with this style approach, especially in television in feature films. It all depends on the director and how he wants to shoot. On Need for Speed. We did a lot of coverage. We went in for close-ups. We went in for extreme close-ups. We did it with five, six, seven cameras a lot of times. There was a lot of coverage for Scotty Waugh to be able to uh, cinch and expand and do whatever he would like to do. the same thing. He wanted a lot of coverage. So there's that dial as well as Gabrielli's style as well as somewhere in between. And I think that's what I'm suggesting to you. The process of taking the shot shot list and embedding it in the script is very important for you to really see the tone and the style. It starts to evolve right in front of you as you see it on the page next to the words and the description of the shot. It's really a powerful way to approach it. Hi, Shane. I am Daniel from Nigeria. Hi, Daniel. How are you doing? I do appreciate all you have been doing and still plan to do in the bid to help us, the next generation, highly appreciate the commitment that you put into it. And I have a question. All right. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for all your support and your commitment to the inner circle. What is an emotional breakdown made up of? And how do you do that for a script? I would appreciate if you could share some examples, insights, so I know how to make one in respect to a story. And would like to also know what informs your decisions and choices as you make a breakdown. Let me try to take a movie that you could probably see. Let's take Crazy Beautiful, for example. Crazy Beautiful was a film of a very young, troubled teenager that has been through drug and alcohol rehab and everything. And she goes to a very esteemed high school in the Pacific Palisades and she ends up falling in love with a Hispanic boy from. East LA, which is a very Hispanic area in Los Angeles. And it's very dangerous. And it's got all its ethnic area to say that this guy is taking this bus ride two and a half hours every day to school to learn and to get out of East LA. What I wanted to do is the style of of cinematography is I attached emotions to these people. So Nicole was in a house, a glass house that her dad and her evil stepmother ran. Her dad was a congressman. His wife died and that's what sent Nicole down this awful spiral of drugs and everything. Her world in this glass house was very controlled by this evil stepmother. The camera motion that I wanted to convey is every time we were in that house, the camera never moved. It was locked off and locked down because I wanted you to feel that constriction. I wanted you to feel that she was in this fishbowl, this glass box, and they were looking on her and she was in absolute under their control. Carlos, being from East LA, he had a very controlling mother. So the camera moved in very militant style. It only moved left to right, right to left, up and down. It never moved diagonally. And that was the emotion of his world and his house. Now, when the two of them collided, it became Nicole, when she was out of that glass house, the camera was very haphazard, the frames were very off-center, a lot of headroom, a lot of footroom, a lot of negative space to one side or the other, very inconsistent, like a teenager. They're all over the place. I have a teenager. They're all over the place. One minute, they're talking to a person, and I meet them in their house, and, hey, this is my new friend, Chelsea, and the next minute, Chelsea, that bitch, right? So these are the ideas of a teenager, and they're kind of all over the place. So I wanted that style of camera when she was out of the glass house to be that, And Carlos comes in with his militant view of he's traveling out of East L.A., he's going to this charter school, this is what he wants to do, he's got to get good grades to get out of East L.A., to get out of the hood, so he's in this militant style. And when they mix, Nicole starts to change the language, the camera motion of Carlos, and Carlos starts to change the camera motion of Nicole and it becomes this other style. Now, all this is done over a two-hour movie and I describe it and you say, oh my God, this is, but when you see it, you will feel it. It's not going to be something like saying, oh, yeah, look, I see all those lock-off cameras. It feels like she's in a glass house and she's under surveillance. Or, my God, when they're out of the house, it's like the frames are all haphazardly and all over the place. These are things that you will feel. You're not necessarily going to call attention to it. This is the art of cinematography. And this is the art of really understanding the ability for you to, to evoke and assist characters' emotions. That's my quickest breakdown that I can give you and kind of an example, and if you get that film, you'll start to see it and breathe it. Hello, my Inner Circle family. I just completed Muse, and I have developed my keywords that represents what my story says. They are compassion, selfless, underdeveloped, lead, endurance. How can these words be portrayed in my camera emotions? Lens choice, camera angle, key to fill lighting ratio, color palette, depth of field. I'd really appreciate all your input, Shane, and please help. Neil. Hey, Neil. How you doing, buddy? All right, these are great. Let's take underdeveloped. A camera motion for that would be a camera that never really is settled, that is always slightly moving from left to right or up down that you're never really happy with a frame, so the frame is just always moving just ever so slightly, and I'm talking subtle, I'm not talking, okay, you're panning right to left, you're up, down, you know, it's just this drift and this energy that you're creating that's like, whoa, what's going on here, why is that? An emotion of lead, well, a leader, the center. So let's say a lens choice would be a slightly wider lens, like a 35 mil, I would take the camera and I would lower the camera, under his eye line, and I would put him in the center of the frame, or her in the center of the frame, because this is the leader, and I would have that style go throughout the whole film. Or if your character goes from leading to then following to failing to whatever, you can then alter that style. But low angle, uh, center of frame, wider lenses pushed in, that's going to give the person power and leadership. Compassion. A compassion, I would say, let's look at a key-to-fill lighting ratio on that. I would say that a compassionate person would be a little flatter in lighting. If your key-to-fill ratio, let's say, on the whole film is three to one, so three stops down on the fill, maybe the compassion character is two to one or one and a half to one. Just something that really lightens the mood and the tone. You can surround the compassion person with purples and golds and warm greens and that kind of stuff. Oranges to make that more of a compassion colors in the palette. Selfless. Maybe depth of field could play. In underdeveloped, you'd want to play with shallow depth of field as well. So not only would the camera be panning around and not ever being completely happy with the frame uh, you could play with shallow depth of field there i think selfless would be something of maybe a little more headroom one that you could play with the depth of field of of having more depth of field around feeling that this person is selfless. They're caring about all these, and I think this plays into the compassion as well. They're comparing about all mother nature, let's say, or everything that's around them. So playing with more depth of field in these situations could add to that. These are the things that, you know, just spitballing out there and kind of throwing out. These are the kind of things that I uh, attach to every scene. Okay, what is this person going through? And then how can I do it? Through all the things that you've talked about. The camera motion, what the movement or not movement, what it should feel like. The lens choice. Should it be a longer lens? Should it be a wider lens pushed in? Lower angle, maybe higher angle. Endurance. I think a lower angle would work for that. A camera that's always booming up and booming down maybe to show that he's keeping up, that he just, he or she just keeps on going, keeps on driving. The camera always has those subtle up and down moves. Your key to fill ratio, I think, is going to be wonderful and compassionate and selfless. Underdeveloped, you could keep it a little darker, lead, stronger. I hope this helps, but I think this is a very evolved question, which I love, but I think I've taken you down the road of how I think about each one of these things, breaking it down and seeing, okay, what can I do from a camera perspective that's going to make you feel that emotion? Okay, how can the lens and the camera assist? Is it moving? Is it not moving? Is it a wide angle? Is it longer lens? Is it a shallower depth of field? Is it the lower angles? Is it a higher angle to look down on them? If a higher angle belittles somebody, makes them so smaller makes them look like they're looking for compassion so a higher angle looking down on somebody i would say that would be great for compassion these are the kind of things that come to mind when discussing emotions and how best to convey those through a visual medium well thank you very much that concludes the september podcast and these were amazing questions and i again i can't thank you enough for submitting all these please continue to submit your questions and and, uh, keep this amazing community alive. Remember, I'm only as good with these podcasts as you are all in the commitment to the inner circle and the commitment to excellence that we all have as individuals and being able to give and sending these questions in to us so we can continue to educate and inspire all of you. Thank you again and have a wonderful day. If you love what you're listening to here, go to shanesinnercircle.com. It is knowledge that is forged on the set. This is not a classroom environment. This is boots on the ground, immersive learning that you can apply immediately to whatever your skill level is. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps. Most notably, the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.